What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 55 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, I got to sit down with both Fletcher of Archive Seats and Chris, aka Dammit Bobby, at the 2023 Smoking Jacket, where the podcast was once again recorded live in front of an audience. We talk about their relationship as breeder and processor. We get a glimpse into what goes into the work behind Archive Seed Genetics has been putting out and how that's resulted in their strong influence on the modern hashing, as well as a Q&A. So definitely stay tuned for it. I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for being a huge lifeline for the show. Without the support of the people on Patreon, I could not make the show. So I'm incredibly thankful to all of you. If you aren't part of the community and you'd like to support the podcast, get access to early releases, additional interviews, and more, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. That's the Hashish I-N-N through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests this year with the best ceiling carb cap in the game. You can grab yours at Zach Brown Glass on Instagram or ZachBrownGlass.com. Also, a shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Again, you can visit at RosinEvolution.com or on Instagram at RosinEvolution100, where you'll find everything that you need, whether you wash or press. Rosin Evolution has got you covered from full mesh wash bags to custom sized rosin bags with their unmatched products and customer service. Rosin Evolution is your one-stop shop for anything rosin. And if you'd like to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com and supports the podcast. Shout out to one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit on their site, toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at Toro underscore glass. They've been pioneering functional glass art since the early 2000s. They stay at the forefront of innovation where their passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired them to create new ways for us all to consume it while maintaining their extremely high standards of quality. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art, no matter where you are in the world, visit Toro at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at Toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies Hashhead Outfitters. You can visit on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or on their site HashheadOutfitters.com where they focus on small batch, high grade clothing and accessories for hash lovers that get you feeling extra cozy with that dab. They're a perfect blend of quality and comfort. You can feel good in that the 100% cotton is sourced responsibly and you can look great I love the new French blue colored hoodies that they just dropped right in time for fall, as well as their sick collab with glass artists Grow. Check out their Cloud Skull slurper sets and coins on the website now. So if you want to treat yourself or find a hashy gift, 
who caters to hash lovers' lifestyles. Again, visit Hashhead Outfitters on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com. Again, another shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up our guests with my favorite carb caps in the game. You can check out his V2 series and beyond at Zach Brown Glass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 55 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragum Amir. Today we are here again live at the Smoking Jacket this year, 2023. We appreciate everyone coming out. It's really cool for us to be able to do the podcast in a live setting. Today I could not be more stoked to be here with both Fletcher of Archive Seeds and Chris, aka Damn It Bobby. Again, we are here live at the Smoking Jacket 2023 in Portland, Oregon. Archive was kind enough to host us, so we wanted to thank them right off the bat for that. Let's get right into it. Chris, how are you doing, dude? I'm doing really well, thank you. Awesome. Super stoned, been judging all morning. I finished all that last night and last one this morning. Yeah, I, we appreciate you being an expert judge here along with six other expert judges. How was that experience for you? Really good. I don't get to see those people often enough, so... The fact that they were, you know, selected and they get to come up here was really cool. You know, get to spend some time with them as well. Professor Sift, Andrea, you know, Slight. So, yeah, it's really cool to get everyone together. So, since you've been on the other side of the coin, where you've done a lot of competing and a lot of winning the last few years, obviously with the archive gear, what can you say about what you saw in the competition regarding genetics this year? Were there any, like, dominant profiles or anything that stood out to you in particular? Yeah, for sure. There was a lot of things that were... Um, I, it seemed like there was a lot of papayas. There was a couple of rainbow belts. Um, like fruit, a lot of fruit-forward stuff, it seemed like. and Not a lot of like the savory or gassy stuff, it didn't seem like. So it, it seemed like it was a lot of like those really fruity-forward things, you know, like in a couple of Skittles-type varieties. So whether it was rainbow belts or like an OGZ or something like that, you know. So it, it, to me, it was mostly like the papaya candy-like dominant profile for sure throughout the kit have you seen that at other competitions or have you seen uh, a different range in profiles in in that setting for example i mean it's always pretty similar to be honest like it's it's like seems like there's a lot of like very similar things that everyone wants to take for that time of year if they have it around at the time you know like seems like that's kind of like the dominant thing like everyone kind of gravitates towards a similar type terpene profile to bring to these events you know it's kind of a noticeable pattern, at least, you know. Gas isn't one that's really around a lot that I've noticed at these events. Like, not a lot of sours or gassy things, which is highly encouraged, you know. Like, that that would be great, you know. Yeah, it was interesting. I had the opportunity to go to the Culture Cup out in Maine recently, and they had a lot of East Coast competitors, including lots of Maine and other people come in from out of town. And it really did become much more like of a diverse group of terps in there including a lot of like gas so for sure that's really cool yeah hidden forest put that on yeah yeah correct yeah, yeah hunter's great for sure yeah so it's really cool to go around and be able to see like these different ranges and it has to do i'm assuming with like what people personally like in that yeah. part of the country for example or yeah, what they have sure. available to them it seems like there's a lot you know there's a lot of popular flavors throughout you know that kind of don't they don't correlate sometimes you know like you know, the, it seems like the East Coast does have a lot more of the gas and the sours unlocked right now, you know. So, whereas, like, out here on the West Coast, there's there's a little bit of the OGs and the sours, but not nearly as much as, like, the candy or the fruity stuff, you know. 
So, Fletcher, on that note of talking about, like, a lot of these hash or rosin competitions have, let's say, like, these groups or certain pools of flavors that show up, whether they're, like, in a certain expression of it or another. How do you see genetics going towards hash? Is, is there, like, a bigger need for opening up, like, a more diverse pool of terps that people can then, you know, use in, in different projects? Yeah, I think the biggest problem, at least with solventless hash that we have to deal with, is that certain flavors just don't wash. I think we all know that. And my personal opinion, I don't have the scientific evidence for this, but just I think a lot of us started seeing BHO, and there are certain strains that are really high in terpenes and maybe not so potent. They don't really freeze in a freezer. The, your BHO will stay all soft still. It doesn't harden up. And the same thing, that's basically the consistency of your trichome heads. And so you put that hash into water. At Your water is only going to get to 31, 32. The heads just aren't going to freeze. They're not going to break off. You're not going to be able to collect it. So certain flavors or certain flavors that make your resin not washable. And, and there's also like the resin cuticle and also the like stock traits as well for how clean your hash is. I mean, there's a, multiple things, but just the hash freezing itself. So there's certain flavors that just, we can't really touch that BHO. You can make great BHO from a strain, but not hash. So I think doing breeding to take varieties, like let's say HP 13 is a great example. Really, really great smell, but low THC, doesn't wash at all breed with it, find one that does have that smell and flavor, maybe by increasing the THC percentage, now it does wash. And now you do have, now you can take that, what was unseen in the, in this hash world in terms of available flavor and making it viable as a new, new variety or new flavor. And I think that, that's where, for the hash scene, a lot of breeding efforts should be going into. Have you seen genetics that have made, let's call it almost like a remarkable jump through breeding of, for example, you brought up the HB13, like that allows something like that to become not only a quote unquote washer, but something that does like pretty well flavor and everything wise also. Well, just think like what GMO, the influence it's had or banana OG, another great example. And these heavy washing strains, you can cross some other things. The hardest part when you, outcross these is they usually bring their flavor with them and you kind of lose that other strain. So just trying to figure out how many seeds you got to grow to find what you're looking for and how much work it's going to take to get there. That's, that's the evolution of breeding for ha this type of hash making specifically. I don't think you have quite the constraints when you don't have to worry about washing and hitting that 32 degree mark. Whereas with BHO, hey, if it doesn't yield that well because the THC is low, but the terp's really good, just grow more of it to solve your problem, you know, in terms of, so, you know, making those varieties viable, especially for making really clean, high-quality hash likes, like everybody is here. You're putting a lot of time and money typically into your, into growing that product. So having a variety that has a unique flavor, unique to your brand, and also performs well, so it's viable for your business. 
ideally what kind of population numbers would you be looking for in like a certain genetic to do so? It's, I think you can find something great in one seed or 10,000 seeds, or you can find one great thing and nothing in 10,000. It's not really the number. It's more how much do you want, how much time and money do you want to invest into this product or process that you're trying to create or recreate or improve and really how much do you want to like what I've found is the more if I grow 200 it's a lot easier to pick what to keep if I only have 10 I start thinking oh man this one's kind of good if I grow it a little bit better maybe this one is the one but once you have a couple hundred to look through it's like oh these three are obviously way better than everything else fuck the rest and it just makes the job easier you don't have to spend so much time it's a little more investment up, up front, but time, money, take your choice. Which one you want to lose? So nothing, nothing good's ever free, right? At this point, what would you say is like what drives you to continue that hunt for a particular profile? Let's go, for example, with the Oishi that you guys presented last year at the Smoking Jacket. And then this year we've seen that evolve into different things that are like even at the store right now, like the double motorboat across the Oishi. Mm. Um just trying shit out. I, I don't really have a plan when I'm making crosses. It's more just hybridize what I can and everything together. You hope this with this is going to be greater. Maybe you put a little bit more money, time, or something into it in terms of, like, I'll pop 30 of these initially, and then if I find the results I want, I'll go back and pop two or 300. And that, to a certain degree, makes sense to do smaller populations, but you just kind of got to shoot for everything and hope something works. And Chris, on the resin level, I'm curious what the experience has been like for you to see like these different genetics and variations of crosses, for example, like the Oishi and seeing how these other resins, you know that they have those genetics in them, but they're expressing differently because they're crossed into something else and expressing a different way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was really fun. That was my favorite thing to run through out of all the new hybrids that we did. I love double motorboat. I love the Oishi. There's like my top two really that we have at the shop other than Limit Peel. So I was really excited to run through those. I think we had like 14 of them to go through. They were all really consistent. You know, they were pretty motorboat heavy, you know, with a lot of that Oishi and like cushy Skittles on the back end. So it was perfect, you know, and the resin type was extremely sandy. It was all really good to work with. Like none of them were really low quality. It was like really easy. Um, and they all dumped, you know what I mean? Like, I think the lowest one we saw was like 6.2 out of them. So those were great to work with. Some of the other hybrids, like from the Oishi, really was like, they didn't wash as well as those, you know, like what to be expected, you know? It's like, you never know what you're going to get out of those. So we did find a lot of really cool stuff out of them. Um, and we're slowly rolling them out through the shop, you know? So it's really, it's been a really exciting time, you know? So Yeah, that's cool. And, you know, I always got to ask, like, when you mentioned the percentage what are you including in that? Is that basically like... It's basically board? just a hash, you know what I mean? Like, that. those numbers are the first ones that we run through, so those are the ones that stick out in my head the most. Um, I do know what they do to rosin, and you know, and like, after we get them packaged, so... But yeah, mostly that number just correlates to hash, you know, immediately from the wash. They were all really small washes. We had like 230-something of them to do. There was, a, there was a lot. Just individual phenos grouped together, you know, a couple plants, ran through them all. And yeah, we found a lot of really, really good stuff out of it, uh, mostly in that double motorboat Oishi. So 
That was really nice. There was an Oishi Skittles that was extremely unique too. So yeah, we're stoked to bring those out throughout the year. And when you're washing those, for example, for the first times, do you always do like a mixed wash? Is it separate washes? And if so, is there like a particular way? Are you pulling like all the bags to see where everything's falling? Yeah, we pull all the bags and they're all individual finos. The only time they would get grouped is if we need to have a big enough batch size to release at the shop or something. So we would group the finos together then, you know, and then keep running the keeper ones that we like, you know, in, in a bigger amount so we can have more material to wash through and release individual finos of those. And we're working on some of those right now, so. Okay, cool. Speaking of hash, Fletcher, I mean, obviously you've been breeding for a long time, but when did hash, like, really start, when did we start becoming, I guess, knowledgeable about it, especially, like, water hash? I learned about hash from, if you guys know, Cannabis Reverend. His name's Jeff. Jeff is old-school hash maker. He was one of the very first importers of bubble bags into America. So... Jeff also and the Bizarre Bros invented the six-star system. What's that? Yep. So, you know, a lot of the systems that we're talking about and a lot of the processes we're talking about were Jeff and myself, to a certain degree, um, refining our processes and then helping other people. And so I was like, I, I, I'm from Virginia originally. I moved out to Washington, like, in sophomore year of high school. And when I was a senior, I met Jeff, and Jeff was making, was going around and finding finding growers and getting dry trim, and no one wanted knew what to do with their trim at all, and he got this strain called the Sweetie, and I think I was seventeen. I met Jeff and went to his house for four twenty, and I smoked um, full melt Sweetie hash off of like a screen with a lighter. You know, we didn't have any dabbing anything. And I was immediately sold. I mean, this stuff was like full melt, dripping through the the screen, Kevin Nail Bubbler. I mean, it was just, it was a different time in that sense. And uh, I was like, you know, this is hash for real. And that, I mean, I was myself and Smelliot, who is Santa Faded X206, I think on Instagram. We had dug out his mom's basement and had like a couple lights in there and I graduated high school and had to grow. That's cool. And how do you feel if you feel that having smoked hash and being exposed to it changed your mindset as a cultivator going forward, knowing that like it came down to the resin glands to a certain degree? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I probably already had purchased Robert Connell Clark's hashish book. So I was already up to my arms in it. I was to everything about it. I was reading the charts in the back of it, just like, what is what is in this plant and why is it so special and why do they want to keep it from us? So from there, did you start like a collection of genetics early on as you started growing? Like, did you understand the importance of keeping certain genetics and then working those eventually? Yeah, I mean, it, it was just hard to get genetics initially, period. Your options were Amsterdam, and Canada. There's like Mark Emery, and at the time, Gypsy Nirvana had just opened his retail store, Seeds Direct, in Amsterdam. And then you could go to Amsterdam and buy seeds from like Sensi Seed Bank and that. And that was pretty much it. And there was Heaven's Stairway, which was the seed retail website for Cannabis World and Overgrow.com, which is like 
pretty much all the strains we have today is stuff that was filtered one way or another through all these forums. And so, yeah, I knew immediately it was genetics. I, I started off with orchids as a kid, and I was just always into plants anyways. So, you know, it's like 20 or 30,000 kinds of orchids, There's, it, there are thousands, I can't remember exactly how many. So I just immediately knew cannabis is this plant that's being eradicated. And because of people like Jeff and the really thriving indoor grow scene in Washington, I had seen lots of kinds of cannabis that were really unique. The dog shit, Albert Walker, the sweetie, lemon balm, like all these old strains. And I just knew it's like we're, people are going to get raided. These are going to get lost. So I got to start trying to collect them. And then I had also bought, you know, fuck, by the time I was 20, I probably spent ten dollars or $20,000 on seeds and grown them and realized most of this shit from Amsterdam and Canada sucks. And all the American clones that I know of, which may have come from at one point in time, Canada or Amsterdam, but when I was buying seeds, I couldn't, I wasn't getting that from results wise. So I was on the hunt to try to get what I could and keep it and preserve it. And then do you think in part because you weren't able to find, let's say what you were looking for, that created desire in you to start actually creating genetics and making your own seeds? Yeah, absolutely. It's just a natural, what can I do with them? What was your first cross, do you remember? Yeah, Malawi and Hayes. So there was a Malawi cut that came from Jeff. And I had a friend down here in Portland who had NL Hayes F2s from 1995 Sensi stock. And he had a male from those. I had the female. He gave me pollen. I made the seeds. I gave him the seeds back. He grew them out. I came down. We picked them out. And then that became the cut that our group ran for a lot of years. Uh, was it at that point that you started understanding kind of the art of selection as well? Yeah. It was like once I had done that, then it was, you know start popping shit, make seeds. And I made a lot of stuff, but at the time, it was just hard to dedicate space with just the illegality of everything to pop a large population or dedicate that much of your space to it, especially dealing with hermaphrodites or anything else. I always find it funny when people are like, you don't want to deal with Hermes, you should go back to land race. It's like, I've started there too. Plenty, plenty of hermaphrodites there too. So take your pick. It's, it's genetics. At the end of the day, you're looking for qualities that we find desirable for our senses, not what the plant finds desirable to grow outdoors and survive. And you just have to weed through that for what, what you want. Have you felt like that's like changed over time for you since then? Like, I think it's probably gotten better for most seeds, you know? Most of the stuff, I mean, the quality of what you're getting from most of the seeds on today's market, regardless of who's using it, the, the clones that are being traded and passed around are considerably better than what I was seeing back then. Not in terms of the American clone-only strains, but the results from the seeds I was getting from Amsterdam and Canada. Do you think that you'll ever be able to pop all the seeds that you make at some point? Not a chance in the world. I have millions of seeds <laughs> that I are in freezers. So over a year, and this may change, like how many projects are you typically working on? I try to run two to 3,000 seeds a year, but depending on like how many projects are in the works or if you have a really successful seed population, you end up running stuff longer or rerunning it more times. 
So it can be, you know, anywhere between like 1,200 to 2,000 a year. Okay, yeah, that's a good number. And, and that's a bunch of different crosses, not all one thing. So a lot of the time, at least our process is to take, you know, 10 or 20 of something, look through it, look for results that you're looking for, consistent results, or look for qualities that you're looking to find more depth to, and then maybe go through a couple few hundred if you have confidence and that that's the direction you're trying to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Chris, when you and I spoke a while back, you mentioned that you had been washing elsewhere and you had an opportunity to swing by archive when you were looking for a new opportunity and that just visiting you knew that this was the place for you. Why? Mostly my connection with Adam. You know, he and I hit it off, it seemed like, and it was just really cool. You know, there was no, like, effort that went into it. It was just really organic, it felt like, and... I had been a huge fan of all the work they'd been doing before that, buying flour at the shop and, and all that. So I was very familiar with who they were and what they're doing. So I felt really grateful for that opportunity. And, you know, it just, it worked, you know. And then once we started making hash and all that, it just, there was no stopping, you know. Like, it, it just, it worked out really well. And I'm super thankful for that, you know. How many years has it been now? Close to six, I think, you know, right around five at this point. So, yeah. How do you feel like you've grown within your role within Archive Portland? Man, we're a really, really small team. You know, <clears throat> we don't add many people. We just added a sales guy, you know, but I got one guy that helps me in the lab. So he and I are really close. Um, but we've, we've all definitely grown a lot. You know, we've learned a lot of lessons throughout the years. The lab has grown. You know, the equipment we're using is changing. The techniques we're using are changing. Like... You know, you can't get complacent. We're always trying to progress and do better and better each year, run new genetics that Fletch provides to us. So, you know, we're always trying to, you know, look at the next step and, and see what we can do throughout the year to kind of separate ourselves a little bit, you know, and have some more unique flavors. Do you feel like within that you've become more efficient? Yeah, yeah, man. The efficiency has gotten a lot, you know. Me and that kid have it dialed, you know. Like, I love making hash. That's all I've ever wanted to do, so... You know, you know, as we've been doing it together in the in the lab for so many years, it gets dialed to a certain point where you just it's like riding a bike, you know. And I love doing that with that guy, and we have a lot of fun in there, and we produce a lot of hash. So I really enjoy it, and and the efficiency has gotten better as the equipment advances, you know. And we add new things to the lab, so yeah, the efficiency's gone up, and you know, the amount of stuff we're producing is more and more. So we're thankful for that too. Are you guys in the lab almost weekly or like the whole week usually? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're there sometimes seven days a week, you know, always doing something, pulling trays, filling tanks, everyone, you know, we all put some time in there. So, yeah, we, you know, we're there a lot. It's a small team, like I said. So, you know, we all kind of help each other out where we can throughout the facility. What are your typical wash sizes? I know you mentioned, for example, sometimes doing the mixed phenos, but... Obviously, other times it's just like no. Straight. Yeah, usually I like to do anywhere from like fifty, you know, like fifteen thousand grams in a wash is is pretty chill. I don't mind that. Ten thousand is really fun, you know. Like if you got to break up a lot of, you know, get a lot of the same material, you got to break it up and do smaller washes. Ten is really good, you know. I really enjoy those size washes, but fifteen is kind of the max, you know. And it's then, just being one of the kids, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, well, that's how I was wondering since it is a small team. You know, I know you mentioned to me the other night that we were chatting. You're like, I think sometimes people think it's like a much bigger. Yeah, community. absolutely. People think it's like some massive thing and there's tons of us, but it's like not really, you know, there's five, six of us with Fletch and 
some people on the back end too, you know. So there's really yeah. not a lot. We've got of three at the breeding facility. Yeah, so you're talking eight people. You know, there's a dispensary that they have bud tenders and, and other things like that. But as far as the cultivation and the hash production, it's it's a very small team. How important in, is that in doing anything successfully, in your opinion, in Fletcher? Like having a good team. How important is it to have a good team, essentially? In it's everything. I don't do anything without it. I, if I don't have the team, I don't even care about whatever the opportunity is. Because quality is what we care about and doing this kind of shit. So f for us, it's just, if I'm not going to do it right, I'm not going to do it at all. And it's not worth the time. And I'm sure you guys all know what the market. Doing this state-to-state -state stuff, there's not enough time. Growing weed takes time. It takes time to make money. And this, you know, it's better to just be really good at what you're good at in my opinion, than to just chase a dollar everywhere it goes. So switching topic real quick. Somebody asked Chris a question about a freeze dryer earlier, and mm -hmm. I think it made Chris a little uncomfortable. I'm <laughs> putting words in your mouth. I mean, Fletch, <laughs> I think, is the reason that we're all using these freeze dryers these days. So I know he probably has something to weigh in on that. Like, Yeah, for I sure. I remember reading on the forums about it, and you know, he's told me the story before. But yeah, the reason that we're using them is for sure because of Fletcher. So... Chris, you're doing my gig, so I appreciate it. Thank you, man. That's what we were transitioning into this. Oh, yeah. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> so, yeah, man. Um, tell us about, like, you know, where that came from for you. Like, is it something you just thought of and you were like, let's try it out? Or The main issue was that we knew that uh, water hash wasn't going to work for microbial testing for a rec market. So we knew basically water hash as we knew it with the, like, the cold room dry tech or whatever where you microplane and everything not only was it super inefficient but it wasn't going to pass microbial so what we don't get water hash and wreck because of it no there's there's got to be another option so at the time you couldn't really get a cheap freezer it was like twenty thousand dollars for a lab conco freeze dryer or anything comparable you could get a used one off ebay who knows if the fucking thing works so Harvest Right had just released theirs. And North Star Genetics actually bought probably the first freeze dryer from them and was using it. But the problem was that because it was designed for food, it would cook your hash at 120 degrees. That was the shelf temperature. So I knew it, there had to be a way around this. At the end of the day, we're not removing water from like a watermelon or an apple or a piece of turkey or something for freeze-drying food, which is high in water content. The hash has maybe like, what, an ounce of water, two ounces of water on your tray or something like that? And if you use like the, the screens that we use where we block the water from the bottom and chip it, then it's like there's almost no water and you can get your dry diet. I mean, we dry big patties of hash in like eight hours. And at the end of the day, like for Terps, your biggest issues are time exposure to vacuum and time exposure to heat. So I knew that, like, well, this shit's obviously cooking the hash. It's, I had a nice, beautiful hash, and now it's like a chunky brown turd with holes all over it. Like it's, what was the space rocks people used to make with the BHO, where it was just like crumble with holes in it everywhere? So I took the trays, and I started insulating them with tinfoil. I did one layer, and then I had like a chunk of, hash that was kind of yellow and some powder around it. 
And I was like, all right, this is working. So I started putting cardboard underneath the tray and then double insulating it with tinfoil. And sure enough, you got powder, dry hash. And the turps were a little cooked because it still was like 120 on the shelf. So um, we put a resistor in the line and I like wired it wrong and burnt some shit and then had to redo it. And, and it worked even better, but it wasn't accurate because I don't, I don't know how they programmed it. I mean, those were the ones with the dials. I don't know. I'm not that good at electrical. I just was like, let me try that thing. So we called Harvest Right, and they had no idea. Um, this is my breeding facility team, my guy that runs that. Him and I were working together on this. So shout out to Ryan because he puts in a lot of work on this too. And he um, called them up and, and told them, hey, we need a shelf dryer uh, shelf and they're like well what do you need it for and we're like we're like we're not gonna tell you because they're in like utah it's like 2014 they said all right it's gonna be like 500 bucks or something and then ryan calls me hey what temperature do we need the shelf temperature at and i said look 45 degrees that way we're like high enough that we can still sublimate water efficiently and not be like because i was afraid if i was under 32 i'd be trying to pull moisture out for days or something like that so I figured 45 is like pretty low. Hash doesn't really degrade too fast at like 45 degrees anyways. And we get that, that shelf in, put a batch in, no insulation on anything, and it comes out great in like 20 hours or something. And so then I told like Abe, Kush for breakfast, and um, I was at like the Denver High Times Cup in 2015 and was showing people freeze-dried hash. And I think Jeff had come over at some point and we had, he'd showed me the just rosin from hash. And I was like, well, I got freeze-dried hash. Let's try it to that. And you'd squish it out, and it's like white cake rosin, what we know today, basically, right? And, man, it took probably two or three years of trying to convince people to do this, to buy a $4,000 freeze-dryer and start doing it. And, you know, it was just... It was just knowing that it was possible and knowing that, like, we opened the store next door with freeze-dried lemon peel hash. I know if anybody remembers that, that was all that shit was actually dry trim lemon peel, freeze-dried hash, and then rosin. Yeah, it's probably similar to, like, when fresh frozen started becoming, like, freezing weed and then... Now you're telling me to put it in this, you know, $4,000 machine that might burn it. A hundred percent. And weed was still pretty valuable back then. So no one was really like really risk a pound that, that easily. But I just knew that, you know, with opening the store next door, I couldn't have a, I, I'm not a BHO guy. I never was. So I knew I had to have something that would pass microbial testing in Oregon. You know, even a couple of years before we were open, just because we had the, the med grow down here. I just knew it had to happen. Chris mentioned the fact that as like technology and things go forward, the efficiency and the quality can also get better. Do you feel that the freeze dryers have got any better or sufficiently better for now? Like the technology on them? Yep. Maybe. Honestly, I don't run the machines much anymore. Like I've told people, I get allergies from weed, especially processing. I'm sure a bunch of other people probably have this and pollen. So, yeah, I mean, we're probably still using four or five-year-old freeze dryers. So I don't even know what's out there, but it seems like there's some newer freeze dryers that are coming out. I think was Cascade. Did they have one that they came out with? I can't remember. 
I don't remember who it is. I think there's been a couple people that are coming out with them. And honestly, having a much bigger one, right? I think there's like a cure, something. There's there's a a freeze drying. Yeah. Yeah. But like getting a bigger one and then having nice adjustable shelf temps. And I mean, I don't think there's much else you could really do. I mean, it's a pretty simple process. Yeah. We run a couple of the old ones and they... They crush, you know? Like, the newer ones kind of have more of the issues, you know? Chris, since you've been here now for, you know, five years or so, do you feel like that's an area that, like, you've also had a better understanding on? Or is it pretty, like, straightforward once you get how to freeze? It's pretty straight up, yeah. Once you figure out how to dial them in, you know, like, you kind of run those settings, you know? If you got thicker trays, you might need to warm them up a little, but that's about it, you know? How do you go then about processing that once it's freeze-dried? Well, we pull it, and then I usually, you know, sieve it down, throw it into a, a like a parchment back seal bag, back it down, throw it in the freezer, and then squish it shortly after, you know. And typically what's going, like, in your range of microns then? Um, we pull, like, 149 through 90 for the rosin of the shop, and then do a mixed micron for edibles and cartridges. Do you guys also put out melt from time to time? Yeah, we have before, absolutely. That's typically like 119 through 90. We've done a 104 through 90, so, you know, a little bit bigger and a little bit tighter micron range, but we've dropped them at the shop before a few times, yeah. Do you have a preference for one or the other? I prefer Mel, yeah, absolutely. I like, you know, that's just my preference. I love smoking Mel. I smoke a lot of rosin, though, too, so I, I, don't, I don't mind either or, but I do prefer Mel a little bit more, yeah. How about you, Fletcher? What are what's your main? I smoke bubble hash. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have seen uh, the the collection before. I think online it yeah. looks pretty impressive. <laughs> Lots of hash. Yeah. What's the rarest hash you think you have? Like, it's probably a hard question, but well, I have like six year old full melt lemon peel dry sift, or I don't know, two thousand sixteen. How many years is that? Seven. Seven year old lemon peel dry sift that still melts like water and. Smells like lemons. Amazing. Do you feel like hash has a longer, well, definitely more than flour, but do you think it has like a pretty long lifeline in general? If you store it frozen, for sure. How about you, Chris? Have you seen the same? Yeah, I agree, for sure. Yeah. Especially the colder your shit gets, the better. So this is, I guess, kind of an interesting, difficult question to a certain degree. It's like, oh, well. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that say that they're breeding. Do you find that most of the people making seed, would you consider them breeders or more of seed makers? Or what's the correct lingo here? I think if two people can make, collect the same two clones and cross them, you're making seeds because we can both make the same cross. If you made a selection towards something, I can't reproduce your results. I can't reproduce your parents. You've selected a plant from seed that's yours. And that's literally the difference in my personal opinion. Because if we can create the same cross, we're just reproducing a known known hybridization. So really then it comes more in the actual selection. And for example, that comes from personal preference of different things, I suppose. Anything. It doesn't matter what you select it for. The process of selection is enacting breeding do you feel like further refining that process for example by continuing lines finding selections and then working 
those selections maybe with other things almost builds upon that? I think the more you do it, the more success you'll have, if that makes sense. The more seeds you pop, the more success you'll find. Yeah, like I said, sure. I just shotgun approach. I don't, you know, I don't know this cross with this is going to be the one and then throw everything else away and just say, these are the seeds. You should grow only these. No, I, ha I have to just grow them out. Have you had instances where you hope something would turn out similar to what it did? Like millions of seeds in my free in my refrigerator full of those. <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you decide then, you know, for example, in that case, what to keep working at this point and, and how to move forward with what maybe you already have? Just find stuff you like and keep working it with in two circumstances, the most different stuff you can find. And if you're trying to refine something, the most similar things you're trying to find and just picking that. Generally, that'll be, you'll have good success. What are some of the characteristics you're looking for at this point in plants? For me, it's always been smell, flavor, and potency, but that's usually a byproduct of good flower. If the flower smokes really strong flavor and everything, pretty much everything else goes with it. I'll deal with a finicky plant or any of that stuff. Because I think one thing that's changed now versus maybe 20 years ago with a lot of people's cultivation standards is 20 years ago, you didn't have a lot of strain choices at all. You maybe had one or two really good clones. So you had to maximize the performance. So when you went on the forums a lot, a lot what you would see is people trying all different kinds of cultivation methods, DWC, NFT tubes, rock wool, hydroton buckets, all kinds of different methods because everybody's just trying to maximize their strain and all these strains have different performance characteristics. So what may do really well in hydroton buckets for your average grower doesn't do well in rock wool for the same guy. And so they, they you know, I have all kinds of friends that still have garages full of like old hydro systems and old things they tried out. I mean, I've got an old uh, Omega garden somewhere in someone's garage you know i used to own three of those things like you were just maximizing your square footage and maximizing your wattage so you'd met your output from your wattage so everybody was really trying to dial in their strain and so you'd always see every few months the same weed and this batch was better or worse than the last batch and now everybody kind of a lot of people just kind of hardline their cultivation method because that's what your business allows. It needs to be on time all the time. You need these consistent inputs and consistent outputs. And if the plant doesn't perform in that system, you can't just on the fly start adjusting things because then employee, the whole thing goes haywire. So people don't really dial strains in anymore. So there's a lot of strains that not only are they really excellent plants and perform well, but they're not they don't fit well within today's grow, uh, cultivation style parameters. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Do you feel like that's in part, I know you mentioned that there are so many choices, but is that driven by like a market that now has got used to that and just wants more of that? I think it's just overproduction in the market. You know, main thing. That, the economic conditions as a result of that. So what do you feel like it takes to, I guess, stand out in that? 
breeding and having products that are unique to your company. At the end of the day, green, homegrown, KGB, all those original names people had for just homegrown weed, it, strain names weren't really a big part of the market. And then, you know, think about sour diesel. Before sour diesel, there wasn't a diesel market. There wasn't people asking for diesel. Then someone made or found the diesel plant. Now there's millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of people, or billions even, after, after all these years, of people that are loyal to the brand of weed called diesel. And there's a lot of power in that. Do you see yourself as having like a, a staple, I don't know if palette or flavor profile, like for archive? Do you feel like you have that or like, is there one or is it just ever changing? It always, I mean, wherever the plants take me, but I just try to keep shit dank. Just, but you know, when you used to get a bag of weed, came with a strain name, didn't, whatever it is, you're like, man, this shit is so dank. It's skunky. It's got everything to it. It's not, there's nothing mediocre about it. I just try to find plants like that from hybrids and only keep plants like that. And then now with hash, is that something that you also take into consideration? For example, like the texture of the trichomes. And if so, what are you looking for in that sense? For us at the breeding facility, we mainly just focus on flower because generally that's the starting point. The best flower strains typically are the best starting point for everything else. Let them mostly deal with figuring out which one of the five out of the 20 or 50 or 100 that we selected through the breeding facility. Let them pick what washes well. That may not be the same plant that was the best flower. So in that case, since you're focused on the flower how much is allocated to that R&D, let's call it? Uh, what do you mean? Like, if you're taking the most of that R&D or just yeah, flower R&D? The, the hash R&D. So the fresh frozen, for example. We, for us at the breeding facility, we just uh, process through it as if it's just yeah, a byproduct. Because it's sure. too, too many small amounts of little things. I don't have time to go through it all. So then it gets sent out to more production-oriented spots. And Chris... What's your process of trying to go through the ones that you do get? I know we talked a little bit earlier about like, you know, pulling all the bags for them, but how yeah. do you go about, you know, uh, Fletcher said it's, it's up to you guys to figure out like the data behind that. How do you make that data and how do you help that inform what keeps moving forward in your department? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we get a lot of cuts from Fletcher. Uh, we run them down here and first off, we have to make sure they do well. Like that they produce well for flour and stuff like that, because typically then we can't go any further with it because we sell a lot of flour as well. So if it does well for both, that's really cool. Um, and we typically all the new stuff will freeze all the phenos, a few plants of them, and individually wash them and go through and find out. And I mean, a lot of them, yeah, dude, they don't wash for shit, you know. So it's like it's it's really hard. You're not making money on those, really, you know. So and and we do find some that do extremely well. Um, so then on out, yeah, we'll just, we'll kind of narrow down all of those, let Fletch know how they did for us, and then kind of, you know, populate them a lot bigger and rerun them and make sure they're going to be consistent and that they're doing that, you know. But yeah, we typically try and find the ones that are going to do well for flour and produce like a nice sandy resin that we think at least will do some well, will do well in the wash, you know. And so this was a question for the panel yesterday. They were asking them, for example, what is like a minimum number for you? I know you mentioned earlier, you know, in the six, seven range for some of the genetics currently, what is a 
what is that number for you guys? I mean, sometimes the, the, the individual pheno can be like 1,000 to 2,000 grams, you know? Like, so luckily, they've gotten bigger. We've done batch sizes that are half that size, you know? Like, sometimes you got to do what you got to do to find those. And in doing that, we have found some really good things, you know, that we still run to this day that, that are staples for us. So doing those small individual washes, putting in the work, and pulling all those bags to find them is definitely worth it, you know? Like, that's what it's all about, you know? That's how you find new things out of these breeding projects, bring them to life, and have something different than everyone else. And then percentage-wise from those, like, your returns, what's, um, like, a minimum I mean, return dude, for Sometimes you? you'll see, you know, under one, you'll see one to three. A lot of times you'll see five, six, seven. You know, we've seen up to eight on one of them. So, you know, it, it sits more so in, like, the five to six and seven range, but... A lot of the times, you know, you find stuff that does under that. And, and, you know, it's just a matter of how unique is it, you know? How flavorful is it? How well did it do? Did it produce a bunch of flour? Can we sacrifice it, you know? And those kinds of things. Cool. Well, I think it's time for a quick smoke break. You guys down? All right, Absolutely. let's do it. A huge shout out to our friends and partners, Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. Outside of providing makers all over the country, consistent and quality products in their rosin bags and wash bags alike, and doing so with their amazing customer service, they also help support projects within the community like the podcast, which has then allowed us to explore new ideas like doing live events. The smoking jacket and this recording were made possible through Rosin Evolution's support and we're incredibly thankful for it. So if you need anything to make rosin, support great people who make great products at rosinevolution.com or again on Instagram at rosinevolution100 and to support the podcast while saving money, use our discount code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. All right, cool. We're back. Uh, this is funny and weird to do in a live setting, but we took a little bit of a smoke break, so we appreciate you guys being patient. So, you know, Chris, I get a lot of requests Yo, to have you on the podcast, and people are always like, want to know about Damon Bobby. So you and I have yeah, talked a little tough. bit about and you know it's funny enough man you you grew up where i went to college uh in yeah Texas. absolutely yeah so tell us a little bit about growing up there and, and you know how you got into cannabis to just being a degenerate out there and trying to find the best weed i could you know like it comes with its ups and its downs but yeah man i mean it was all pharmaceutical out the gate for me like i was i was replacing something like i grew up mormon i was taking you know things that growing up to help with anxiety. And so like when I was introduced to cannabis, it was like a whole totally new ball game for me. So I went really hard in it as like finding the best I could or whatever, you know, things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just a mission to find that out there. And like, that's what got me interested in all the different breeders and stuff like that and how I got introduced to Fletcher's work and stuff. So yeah, man, I was just super passionate about finding the best cannabis that I could out there in the middle of nowhere in Texas, you know? So, you know, you mentioned like earlier in life, uh, not having cannabis and then finding it and being kind of a game changer for you. How was that, for example, like at home, were parents like accepting of this or? No, not at, not at all. You know what I mean? Like at first it was, they hated it, you know? And then once, you know, they saw me go through it a bunch and like, you know, they didn't really care. I was at home doing it. It wasn't like I was out partying or anything, you know? So 
when I moved to Portland and then I just quit everything that I was doing before and just went really hard at cannabis and used that as my only option for medicine. Um, that's kind of what changed their mind on it big time is because they saw like everyone was so against it. You know what I mean? Like, that's a horrible idea. But I ran with it. I didn't really give a shit. I don't really listen well at all. So I did what I wanted to do. Um, it ended up working out luckily. You know what I mean? Like it had a lot of ups and downs, but I was super passionate about it and that's what I wanted to do. So it worked out and my folks were really stoked to see that, you know, and like, especially to see where it's come, you know, like, so I'm, I'm really grateful for being able to have that opportunity and go down that path and, and have cannabis help me out that much, you know, so. Was that basically your motivation to come out West? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I remember it's funny. I was telling someone just funny how time flies, but I remember you taking, uh, being down there with Kush Kirk doing a yeah, class dude, with him that, several that years ago so during fun. Water Clash. For sure. That, that was like what changed everything for me was going down and spending the weekend with Brandon and Amanda um, and having them show me the ways and, you know, their techniques. And it wasn't just making hash or, or anything like that. We did so much more than that. He showed me around the farm, you know, we were digging in soil. There was all kinds of different animals and all kinds of different life there. Like, It was a wonderful experience and it changed everything for me after that, you know, like it only put more wind under my sails. So I'm super grateful for Brandon and Amanda and I really appreciate them for giving me that opportunity, you know. What was it about hash that was like attracting you as you got out west or was it something that you were already familiar with in Texas? Yeah, for sure. No, I saw soil grown squish and stuff, you know, around that time was when I was getting ready to come out here. So I got really hyped on that and started just trying to find the best shit I could out there. It was hella expensive, but just start smashing nuggets, you know, and it was like ridiculous. And everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, but oh, I was so hyped on it because any of the, the concentrates you would get out there was just such trash. You know what I mean? Like, and if you did get some BHO that came in from Colorado or something, it was outrageously expensive. So it, it just wasn't a good option. You know what I mean? And when I saw this, it gave me an opportunity to kind of create what I wanted and try different things. And it was really cool, you know? Like, I really appreciate him dropping all that knowledge, too, when he did. Like, that was crazy. And, like, once you got out here, I think, if I'm not remembering correctly, one of your first gigs was, like, as a buyer or maybe you started off. Yeah, for a- sure. I worked at a dispensary for a while. Um, I was the procurement manager there, you know? Um, and that came from, too, like, even when I was in Texas looking at a lot of these brands and, like, just wanting to try it one day or just being super inspired by it, I never thought that I would end up working hand in hand with a lot of them. You know what I mean? That was, that was crazy to, to be able to do that. So it, it only just gave me more motivation to keep going and keep, you know, trying to do this thing because it, it was working out so well. And like, it just seemed like all the dots were being connected and like they, it was so organic, you know what I mean? Like it, it, and I'm so thankful for that, you know, like it's, that's not typically the way those things go. Like, but yeah, it was fun. It was so how important do you feel like that experience was for you to like further understand what you were looking for or like what we talk a lot about is quality? Yeah, it was cool. Like I was really quality driven. I was probably the youngest one that they had had in that position at the time. So I cared a lot about quality and sourcing the best things I could. I remember we were one of the first shops in Vancouver that had rosin on the shelves because I was so adamant about having it and you know, worked with a farm there in town and kind of was like, yeah, if you guys do this, I'll for sure, I'll, we'll pick it up, you know? So that was really cool. And it was always, yeah, it was just about providing the best quality and, and information and educating the customers about each and every one of these things that we had on the shelf, you know? Fletcher, you mentioned a little while ago, like you knew when going wreck, part of the reason 
of going the freeze dryer route was to like be able to pass the testing for that. And it sounded like it came from like you just liking it. Earlier, we talked about how people didn't really value it as much, for example. Did you see that changing and have you seen it change to a degree that you thought that it would? Are you asking... Like, for example, just the evolution of people's interest in, in like hash and in rosin and in oils and like how before even good water hash, you know, wouldn't fetch more than X amount. It Like the flour was kind of king and you wanted to include that in your rec version of archive. Is that something that like that you saw growing the, the oil sector outside of just like the flour sector? I was really familiar with the oil scene because Shane and Danny and Jordan from Turpex, I knew them pretty well. Because at the time, in like 2012, 2013, I lived in L.A. I had a, a warehouse in downtown L.A. So I kind of ended up knowing like a lot of those people, like Ivan and a lot of the SoCal early dispensary scene prop D license shops. So I kind of ended up really seeing the BHO market pretty close up, the oil refinery days and all that shit. I mean, it was pretty heavy. And I just knew that when something was that easy to make, it's just a matter of time before it's fully commoditized. Hash was not, didn't have that situation. The biggest problem with hash was processing, like being efficient processing. So with the freeze dryer, it wasn't just the fact that a lot of air dry just wouldn't pass microbial. You can get it to do it, but it's also super inefficient. You got a microplane, thousand gram pucks. I mean, I don't know how long that would take. I mean, how many microplane, you might as well invest in microplane gang stock because everyone's going to own a thousand of these little I'm razors. I'm sure Todd or Brandon could answer that question. They yeah, I mean, I yeah. bet you they got... Uh, they, they're definitely doing a ton of that shit, yeah. Do they have like, they should make some kind I of... I too, I'm sure, yeah. Should make some kind of like piece that has them in it to get rid of all those things. They probably got a barn full of them. I'm sure, yeah. Big, massive rooms with lots yeah. of Yeah, uh, you know, I think everybody's thankful that we're not sitting there trying to do that with it. So, at the end of the day, it was just efficient. And it's also the oxidation. It's not just the fact with you have to worry about microbial, but you're also, oxi things are oxidizing just by air drying. So, whether that's better or worse, if that's curing or not, that's up to the consumer, kind of. But at the end of the day, we need the product to be clean. So either way you accomplish that's great. Just one's a lot easier and more reproducible. And Chris, as you kind of got more into the scene, what was it that pulled you specifically to want to work with Hash? You said earlier, like, it's something that you want to do and you wanted to do for a long time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was always interested in making hash, so any opportunity I got to, I would jump at it and and do that. So, I mean, when I met Adam, they were right in the middle of looking for someone to make hash, so the timing was worked out really well and you know, we haven't stopped washing since that moment. So, it's it's been a long fun journey, you know. But yeah, I mean, I've just I've always wanted to make hash, so I was just trying anything I could do to to do that, you know, put myself in any position I could to to do that. So I'm I'm thankful that they needed someone and, and the timing worked out really well. So Yeah, that's cool. And I mean you work with some really cool genetics, like you said, in part because Fletcher has like it's you know, he's working on his own things and has been for a long time. 
Yeah, we see a lot of that down here, and you know, it's it's crazy. You know, like a lot of it doesn't see the light of day. You know, there are some things like when he comes down and shares the Hawaii lemons and and some other things like that, like really unique stuff that we run through. That you know, it just takes a lot of time to get out and share with the world. So, yeah, you got to put in a lot of work and a lot of effort to get to that point. But that's probably one of the best parts about it. You know, so when that moment finally does come, it's great to be able to share those things with people. Yeah, that's cool, man, Fletcher. Has your style of growing changed throughout the years going back to like you talking about the forums and everybody having their way and perfecting certain, you know, varieties? Is that something that's changed for you or stayed pretty relatively the same? It's always changing. We're always doing tests. I've been doing like a, you know, the brand Clonex, Ionic Nutrients, Scott at Ionic. We've been working on a low nitrate formula for uh, like just hard to grow varieties, stuff that doesn't perform well with these really calcium nitrate heavy fertilizer regimens that everybody's kind of on with this rock wool, you know, high intensity growing. And not that there's anything wrong with that. You can still grow great resin on it. I don't care how you grow it. Healthy plants, the best weed and the best resin. So the healthiest plant, whether it's living soil, hydro, my preference is whichever plant was able to express its genetic potential, the, the best whatever media and cultivation method you can get to perform like that. Cause I've grown nearly anything you can probably think of NFT, DWC, hydroton buckets. I had three Omega gardens for like four years. I mean, the thing where it spins around the lights. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So do you find like going through all the different styles has made you overall a better cultivator? For sure. It's just experimentation. The more you're doing of that and recording your results so you don't have to remember it all, it'll save you a ton of time and you'll just make. The the hardest part about learning about growing and becoming better is that every cycle is three months. So you, you make one mistake and your whole experimentation is gone for the rest of that cycle. I can't try a bloom booster. I already fried my shit at week three or whatever. And now you got to wait another two or three months to try again. Now, granted, if you have multiple rooms, you can try stuff in different rooms. But at the end of the day, you can't try too many of those. Otherwise, you'll just burn your whole business down in that sense. So you got to have these well-thought-out, planned experiments where you can get somewhat verifiable results or comparable results in data with controls so that you can really get the answers that you're looking for. Because with growing cannabis, especially indoors, there's just so many variables from your mechanical to your environment, to your nutrient regimen, how you're feeding them, what you're feeding them, everything. So that's the most, just the more you do that, the easier and faster it's going to be, you're going to get there. So how do you feel like people could possibly approach this, what we talked about earlier, how there's so many new genetics, people want genetics all the time, you can't really like necessarily have this genetic work on it, figure out the best way to grow it. How do you go about selecting genetics that need to fit a certain style and that you know might only be in rotation for a while? I think that problem that you're describing where people want new stuff all the time, that that is part of the market for sure. But I also think that's because there's a lack of access to the market for a lot of people around the nation. Because you're only able to serve up your state locally, you have this limited amount of people that like what you do. 
And so, you know, whatever, let's say it's only $50,000 a year worth of sales in one state of this certain type of product. Well, that's not enough to build a grow around, right? But multiply that by 50 states. That's a pretty decent sized business. You probably need a hundred or 200 lights to serve up that very single strain, highly specific boutique, whatever product. There's enough people around the country that want that. There's just not enough people in a 50 mile radius of the dispensary that carries your product that wants it. And that's true for a lot of products around the country. There's plenty of businesses that only do fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year in a state, but do 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollars a year in sales nationwide, or even significantly more internationally, especially high-end products where you have a limited consumer base, but geography is your biggest limitation. On that note, but in a different sense, how has it been for you to see your genetics really kind of in, in a lot of the regions, if not most of the regions at this point of the U.S. and beyond? It's awesome. It's the best thing for my brand out there. That's why we do it. And, and the fact that people get excellent results and are able to represent their brands with in unison, essentially in partnership with us, it's great. And for us, because we try to be so much about quality and about stuff like this. We want people to be growing our shit, find something that's really awesome. We want the best people growing the best stuff. So we both are represented at the highest level. And that's, that's the best part of it all. In that regards, Chris, I know you're mostly in like the processing department, let's say, but you said that you also are able to kind of help out since it is such a small team with cultivation how has that grown for you, your knowledge and your understanding of, of that? Oh, it's helped a ton, yeah. Just to get to be more involved in the whole process, you know, helps. Like you said, the more you do it, the better you're going to be at it. So I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to get into the garden and be able to work with them and learn, you know, on that side of things because that was, you know, new to me. I was just in the lab for years washing and then intaking material and helping them process that material. But now I'm a lot more hands-on with them, you know, from start to finish. So it's, it's been a lot more of a, of an opening experience, you know, like I get to see everything and learn and figure out how these are growing, you know, to produce the resin that we end up squishing and selling rosin of. So do you find like it's valuable also how like you're able to give them feedback as the guy who's processing all the material and saying like, this is coming out this way or like we thought it might come out this way. Yeah. And we get to find out quick. You know what I mean? Like when I find out something doesn't do well, I tell them immediately. It's like, dude, if you got a lot of that shit, maybe don't have a lot of that shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's super not, valuable to just yeah, get the like, feedback as soon as possible. Um, and, and that's the benefit of having places like them and, and Michigan and everywhere just to run through stuff and get results and numbers and data and everything. It, it yes. helps going backwards to the breeding a lot too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you said, you know, outside of not forgetting how important is the data in like once you start going year after year, project after project, is it pretty much invaluable? I mainly go for flavor and for the flower because that's a big part of our business just overall. But yeah, we run when, a lot of that stuff down here and have to crunch a lot of those numbers, you know, and. Yeah, I mean, the, the data is extremely important. You know, it's really important for us to find out if something's consistent. You know, it can do something one time, but it doesn't mean it's going to keep doing that, you know. So for us to run through that stuff multiple times and collect that data is very valuable for us for sure. 
and it's only going to help, you know, further future product or um, drops and stuff like that. You know, the project's coming up. If we can help tell Fletch, you know, kind of what to look yeah. for. We found great success in a lot of these. Maybe try something with that. Tells me know. what to pop more of, too. Yeah, for sure. Because like you said, too, you don't know. You might think X and X are going to go together great, but they may not. So, you know, he ends up doing what he does with them. And we take a lot of those newer phenotypes and a lot of the ones that he likes a lot and run them. And it, it could do really well for him, and it might be totally different for us, you know? like So that's information that's good for us to see, too, because things are environmental, different growing techniques, you know? So we experience a lot of that, and all the data collecting is, is very valuable, yeah. So you say your primary kind of characteristic is the smell the, or the nose of it. Like, is that something that you just go off, like, your senses or is it also something that you're looking to you know quantify for example through testing or whatnot toucan sam said it best you just you just can't beat the old the old schnoz yeah follow your nose it always goes or it always knows whatever i heard some homies <laughs> there we go um what else you got nothing right now that joint's pretty good. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of it. Does anyone have any questions? Got that flower high going. <laughs> we got we got a question over here. This is becoming more interactive. I like this. Adam, yeah. simply Adam. Where is he? There he is. Get Can you run a mic for us, please, buddy. I was just wondering, um, you know, putting out rosin on the market um, and then putting out melt. Like, do you guys find that there's a, a big calling for like full melt and stuff like that on the on the rec market and and what's it like producing it? Man, people uh, always ask for it, so yeah, exactly. It, it, they never end up taking as much as they want, you know. So it's a very small market that that takes the melt, you know. But we've definitely done it, and we like doing it. So, um, you know, just trying to keep it as cold as possible yeah. throughout the packaging, you know, like making sure that it's a clean looking jar, nothing all over it, and all that. So. Not too many other than that, you know, just finding the right strain that's going to put out really good melt that we want to release. So Making sure the retail shops, obviously. Like, yeah, you know, making sure that they're capable of accepting it and cool. that they have proper storage and, and everything like that. Typically, the melt would just go across the street to the dispensary. Um, right. It probably right. wouldn't go to many other shops, but um, yeah, man, it's just, it's, there's not too many challenges, but making sure environmentally everything is right is big, yeah. Hey, so you guys were kind of talking about your process with growing and washing, but I was kind of wondering about the R&D of smoking all of the samples that you guys have to go through. Do you guys sit together? Do you all smoke separately and kind of get back to each other? How does that all work? Uh, we typically, like, so at the shop when we do run through a bunch of those, no, we smoke them a lot together because we all have different opinions. Um, you know, I might like something that Adam might not like. He'll like something that I don't like. And he does a lot of it on his own, too. But typically, we all do it together. And some of us, you know, do a little bit further investigation and take it home. And But typically, we like to do it together. And we usually do it at the shop and share all our feedback that way. We do that with the flour and with the rosin. So, yeah, a collective effort for sure. They're doing a lot of the, like, refinement. So, I'll pop the large lots. Then they're going through the small lots afterwards where it's a lot more nuanced what's better whereas i am the one that has to go through all the freight training through like hundreds of jars and there's no good method yeah Fletcher take your pick a lot more jars. but dry pipe right 
and just, you know, kind of follow your nose and look first, like the traits that you're looking for, get rid of all the trash. Don't waste too much time on that. Maybe go back later if you really are worried about you lost something, but get rid of the, the major stuff, get to the real stuff, go through those with like a pipe or something you can get through fast and kind of make a fast comparison then start joints of like your top tier stuff and then start seeing how those develop and start running those again. And that's where, that's what they end up with is that small lot. Yeah. We usually have the more refined, you know, he goes through the first part and we have all all the the, junk, the secondary stuff. Yeah. We get the really good stuff usually. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And it's nice. With a significant advantage. Yep. Thank you so much for that. Anyone else? What's up? I got a question. And, and I have gotten a, uh, a little flat with some jars before from Fletch, and it was really awesome to get to run through the samples. I know some people that know some people, so thank you for that. Yeah. Are you working on anything, you know, just like an old strain, an old something that, that, that you can't find anymore that you're trying to recreate? Is there anything that you're, you're trying to, you know, pull certain things and like, man, I'm, I'm trying to recreate this thing? I mean, that, did I show you that Hawaiian lemon playing a purple cross? That yes. jar? Yeah, yeah. So stuff like that. You know, the solar flare, which was the Walker Skittles crossed with the Planet Purple or Boomba. I forget the names. I just know the letters and numbers from the breeding facility. We also did the diesel one, the diesel Skittles. Just trying to take stuff like that and get second generation. I mean, just from a lot of my breeding experience, crossing to the original clones themselves every time. Like, oh, I found this new male. I'm going to cross it back to all my old parents. That can be misleading a lot because what you end up with is a lot of F1 hybrids, let's call them. And you end up with all the stuff that's the 50% in between, not the stuff on the ends, the real unique stuff that you find in your F2 generations. So for me and in your inbreeding generations, like taking cousins and things like that and mixing them together because now you have the genes that you're looking for recombining from both sides of your parents. And I know you know this, Kaya, but just kind of what my experience has been. And I get a lot more success trying to, let's say I want diesel smell, to have diesel on both sides of the parents rather than just crossing to diesel. Does that make sense? So that's just been my experience. I just had a question that came to mind. I'm not sure if it's a good one, though. But I was curious, what, what if you could tell me a story about the most exciting time you guys have had together, working together, like anything happened that was exciting or you guys come across something that was exciting? If anything comes to mind. I think mostly just finding genetics that we get, you know, to run from him has been... the One, one day you find something, oh, man, we found, you know... Something that really was a winner that we'll have what, to remember. What have you been really stoked on? Yeah, something mean, lately? For me, it was that motorboat Oishi. Yeah, I mean, like, I was so hyped on that. You know, I couldn't I couldn't preach that one enough at the shop. Like, this shit is the best. Let's run it. Let's run it. Let's run it, you know? So for me, that was a cool moment to see him bring that one to life and then us get to run through it and find our keepers of it and, you know, get to share it with everyone. So that was my favorite time, you know, experience from that for sure. I'd say... I hear you t- comment the most probably when I come around t- 
talking about lemon peel or lemon peel crawl oh, yeah. stuff or you having some lemon peel and you're yeah, like, hold yeah. on, let me pull it out. <laughs> yeah, that shit's my favorite. You know, I love so. that stuff. So that's been the first thing that got me introduced to to archive was that and the dosi hybrid. So I, the lemon peel, I would smoke it all day, every day if I could. Yeah. I think I got like asthma from that shit. I smoked so much of it. <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh, one question I had, being a pioneer in terms of genetics and things like that, do you have any predictions for the future? Do you think we're going to get any old strains coming back um, or any new ones that you're excited for that you think are going to make a big splash and start uh, making trends? I mean, I haven't seen, you know, let's say the next Skittles <laughs> at this point, but I'm sure it's out there. It's just more seeds. At every single clone you can think of at any point in time, that was all a seed someone popped. Someone took a chance, said, I'm going to not produce what I know is going to pay. I'm just going to, hey, I'm going to take a chance on this crop. So I think there is going to be stuff like that. I'm trying to play as many lottery tickets as I can, um, you know, start planting every couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it is up to. Finding old stuff is is kind of difficult. There's a lot of nostalgia for a lot of people too. So you finally do find it and it's not as good as you thought it was. And again, it needs work. It doesn't mean throw it away. It just means take it, hybridize it, pop a bunch of seeds, see what you can find, keep working with it. All you got to do is just do that enough or even just get lucky and do it very little. It's, there's not, it's indiscriminate of how much you do it. It's just doing it. Um, and, you can find the next sour or Skittles or whatever. And as we know, the vast majority of the clone-only genetics in America are from bag seeds and very small population lots. So it's just getting lucky. There's tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people across this country that probably pop a seed every year. And we don't get, we don't get that many new ones that hit the broader scene when you think how many seeds probably get popped every year. And so the more we're all doing it and actually saving what we get instead of just popping it and throwing it away or whatever, the more that stuff we're going to see emerge. I had a question in regards to being a breeder. Do you find, how do you tackle keeping perhaps a mom or keeping something on multiple generations or multiple cuttings down the line? Do you experience any sort of withering of those really high potentials or do you think you know that's just something you tackled like for example your moon bow keeping that in a solid healthy stock so you can keep producing it for you know five to ten to twenty years how do you tackle that challenge it's it's definitely important i i don't think there's actual genetic drift as people call it where the genetics of the actual clone have changed it might have a virus and that's very possible and we know that exists. But if you keep really, really healthy mother stock, keep things vigorous, clone off the vigorous parts of the plant, you should, I mean, I have clones that I've kept for 20 years that still grown correctly, perform very well. Or in fact, grow faster than clones right next to them. Like the Albert Walker, I can plant it right now and it grows twice as fast as stuff I just cut off of seed plants. Just because the genetics are quick growing, it grows fast, it grows up, and if it's healthy, it it rages. 
y'all spoke earlier on uh, the value of teamwork. And I know in agricultural careers, you know, it gets unpredictable sometimes. What do y'all do to maintain the balance as a team when things don't go as planned? I mean, for us at breeding, I, I try to keep, everybody does individual jobs. And instead of all of us trying to overlap and do each other's jobs and micromanage and be on each other's back, everybody be clearly defined in your roles, discuss it, be mature about how you're going to do that. And everybody play their position. Like you can't win the World Series if everybody's trying to be the pitcher. I appreciate that perspective. So you mentioned earlier that like you're basically breeding mostly for flower and that like you know, through the process we've talked about with Chris, it'll determine what goes into uh, stuff that washes. And so I'm curious here at this event that's really focused more like on the resin, the hash, the rosin, in this case, the competition itself. What do you find it is about all these genetics that you've worked that like the flower is really good still, but it also is washing at these like really high numbers with these really cool profiles? Is it simply... Like you said earlier, just trying to always find like dank weed and that eventually resulted in this? Or how is it that you see that like the resin qualities carry over into hash, but also flower, but you're not specifically going for the hash necessarily? I think it's mainly just high terpene content and high cannabinoid content. And that makes for a resin head that's really flavorful and potent, but also not so watery from the terpene content that it actually freezes at 32 and you can actually capture it and it doesn't just slick out in your water. That it's so, and typically the best flower is the shit that has the highest terpene and the highest THC. That's why it smokes good. In your experience, and I know like a lot of that probably goes through the lab now, but how often do you see that translation from flower going through the ice water process, like you've mentioned, and still retaining those qualities. Like the quality of retaining the, the taste into the water hash and furthermore into the rosin in genetics. Is that a common thing that you see? Or I not? think the best flour typically converts to it. So again, it's high THC and it's high terps. That's why the flour tastes good because like every gram has less flour plant material in it. It's got more good resin. So it just smokes better. Um, that's why you'll have strains that like smell really good, but they kind of smoke just smoky. And I think that pretty much usually converts yeah, a lot, to a good. Lot of it translates, um, yeah. I mean, it's they, very rare. I mean, sometimes it happens, you know what I mean? But a lot of the times, the ones that he recommends and says, these have a lot of flavor, like this should be really good, they translate, you know what I mean? Because we have the flower of them as well. So we're able to compare the two. And it's like, usually, like he said, it's just more of an amplified version of the flower. It's usually a nice carryover. So, yeah, I mean, we've been working on a lot of those lately, running through a lot of the new Planet Purple and, like, 112 hybrids. So, you know, to have the flower and the hash hand-in-hand hand is really nice because, yeah, it's a lot of them translate, which we're really grateful for. And then, you know, there are ones that don't, and, you know, it's kind of like down the road you go, you know. Well, and some will translate in the hash but not in the rosin because they have, you know, like well, for sure cookies or some of these strains. They just don't, with the heat and the conversion or whatever happens when everybody you know, changes the with the rosin, it just not necessarily the same. Let's put it that way. Some of the nuances are lost and it just becomes more of a generic smell within a certain certain families of of types of hash. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, what is something that like you're looking for, Chris, when you're looking for like a profile that really surprises you? You mentioned the lemon peel earlier. I think I got to try a little bit of that 
in Barcelona with you. Yeah, I'm sure. It, yeah. it was really nice and like it was actually lemony. Uh, there are other strains that I've tried, for example, this year that have lemon, but it's almost like a a it's cleaner, a brighter lemon. lemon, you know. And so, for sure, you talked about Fletcher having strains that don't necessarily do well in this process. Is there a way? Do you feel like to achieve almost every type of profile that does well in water hash or in rosin? If you're really aiming to do that over time, there is a million different genetic combinations. I have no idea what. That's why I just try everything. I have no idea if this low THC, high terpene variety crossed with this other, you know, high THC but low terp variety is going to make the best new cross out there. It doesn't, it's not always the very best parents that make the best progeny. Because the, the things that we're looking for in the plants that we're selecting is a very narrow range of what, of the genetics that control the plant. So all these other traits that make it good for growing outside and surviving and making seeds and stuff, we're essentially selecting against all that for just the things we want, which is resin production. It's always a gamble, too, whether or not what he's suggesting based off of flavor and the flower is going to do well for us. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes it really does, and it's like, that's a hit. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't, and it's like, great, let's focus on that just for flower production. And, you know, there's millions of other things that we can choose from for hash selection. So sometimes they aren't the best for the hash, but sometimes they do work out really well and they work great in the flower department. The flavor translates. We get a nice return. But oftentimes, you know, it happens to where it's just like that's flower only, you know. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think with all the number of selections that you guys are going through, not, they can't all necessarily, you know, be... Yeah, they can't all be winners and they can't all just fucking reign supreme in the hash department. They have to, you know, they fit in in other departments. Similar to what someone asked Fletcher earlier, I'm curious if you see, like, the flavors or the pattern of, like, what people will go with uh, in growing... I don't know what I'm looking for here, like what they're growing, you know, the genetics that they're growing. Like you guys mentioned earlier in the competition, there's certain amounts of like papayas or uh, sure. rainbow belts or whatever. Yep, so yep. do you see any kind of trend going forward in regards to flavors? I, I think a lot of the old school flavors are trying to come back through, you know, like there's a lot of blue cookies crosses that are coming out. There's a lot of sours coming back. There's a lot of OGs that seem to be coming back. And I think that's great. I think we need to be looking for those old nostalgic terps again and try and, and bring them back and amplify them and have them in new, greater forms, you know? So I do think that the trend, it, uh, Skittles is always going to be around, you know what I mean? That shit's always going to be here. Papaya is always going to be here. But I do think that there will be a trend of new flavors that are coming around over the next few years that are slightly different than what we're experiencing now, for sure. Kaya asked earlier if you were going to work with any old genetics. Are there any genetics that you don't have and that you miss? I think everybody wants a roadkill skunk. Nobody has it, though. Everybody says they have it, but they don't. So I'd love to see it, whoever's got it. Well, I appreciate you guys hanging out this long. We'll start shooting a few questions here and there, and then you know we'll wrap it up. Fletcher... What do you see for the future of Archive, let's say, in the next five to ten years? We're just going to keep refining our craft, just get better at what we do, and just tell more people about it, do more media stuff, and and uh, do more shit like this. Chris, similar, but like in a personal way as well as within your role at Archive? 
man, I hope we just keep growing together. You know, like we've we've been at this for so long together and it's working out so well. You know, we're just trying to refine our craft as well. We want to hone things in, keep dialing things in, running new genetics and growing together. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it takes a group effort to make all this happen. It's not just one person doing it. So I think, you know, I just want to keep focusing on that and growing as a team and, and pushing as hard as we can to keep, you know, getting better and better. Fletcher, you mentioned earlier having different types of screens that you use for the freeze dryer. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Go to spacegreens.com. I don't sell them, so don't order them because I won't make them. I'll refund your fucking order. It's just the old website I had set up for it. But they're basically a freeze dryer insert for your, that you can block the hash from underneath and then pop it off, chip it, and basically it you know reduces your exposure time so you can freeze dry your Dries a lot faster. Yeah. I do have frames that I'd be happy to like send you guys or figure out a way to get to people for people. To, and I'll show you how to put them together. It's kind of a pain in the ass, but you know, it anything helps. for the hash. You've absolutely. used them. Yeah, absolutely. We have a few sets at the shop. Yeah. So. so it's just a matter of, you know, do you want to re- reduce your exposure time or not? And you'll see pictures of it and it'll kind of make sense. Cool. Chris, if you had to name three people who have been influential to you in your hash career, who would that be? Brandon and Amanda, for sure. Let's let's combine them as one, you know, like a unit. They, they changed everything for me, so I'm super grateful for that. And let's see. Marcus, Bubble Man. Dude, I learned, I learned a bunch from him in the early years. Getting to do hash church with him was like a crazy dream come true, you know what I mean? So, like, he's been a big inspiration as well. And Fletch, Fletcher as well, you know what I mean? Like, I've, I've been watching all of these individuals for a long time, mostly those two, and then got introduced to Brandon and Amanda later on down the road. But I, those three people for sure have helped define what I do and who I am today for sure as a hash maker. Cool. Fletcher, similar sentiment, but more like who have you seen as being some of the more influential peoples to, you know, get, you know, hash and then rosin to what it is in, in this modern context to now? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I guess, Robert Connell Clark and Skunkman Sam. I mean, they did a lot of the base legwork for hash and just the research and the research they did at Horta Farm, regardless of what conspiracy theory you want to throw at that whole scene and that turning into GW. The point is just that they did a lot of the work. They they published it. They put it in books that we could access and get, you know, you could go to Barnes & Noble and go scared to go buy one, yeah, but you can go read one in the back and, yeah. you know, that's ba- at least 20 years ago. Finally get brave enough to go buy one and, you know, park your car five blocks away. <laughs> but, you know, they did a lot of the base work and then you got Mila that did the the bags or I guess... I mean, I guess it'd be Reinhardt that did the, came up with water hash extraction. I mean, the list goes on. Jeff and and um, Bizarre Bros and that Star System. And, you know, everybody's put in. Everybody's little bit of work is just standing on the top of the people and, you know, shoulders of the people before you. And, you know, we're all just getting where we are. And hopefully there's a little bit more to to learn with the hash. Although I think we can all agree. I think we're getting close to the limit of, how much you can play with your hash and get something new. You as a processor, Chris, being here for a while, what's your comment on that? Do you see there being much room in growth in that? 
I mean, there's going to be people that are trying to push the limits always, you know what I mean? So there's always going to be something changing, evolving. There'll be some differences. But yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty maxed out on what, you know, what we can do and, and how far we've come with it. But there's there's always going to be more to learn and there's always going to be progression. So it'll be really cool to see that years from now where it plays out, you know, because as we all know, these things happen so fast, you know, it's like overnight sometimes there's a whole new thing out that changes it for years and then it moves on to something else. So, you know, there will always be new things and, and, you know, people progressing and pushing the limit to see what they can do. So I definitely think there'll be more. The better equipment has been impressive over the last few years. Finally, we've seen a lot of progress in quality of equipment and it'd be nice to see a new, bigger freeze dryer or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Two or more adjustable or or coming up with better. But I think we've got some really nice, awesome, clean, well-preserved trichome heads nowadays hitting a lot of people's hash pipes. A lot more than I ever saw at any Legends of Hash or any event like that, you know? So you guys all have a lot to be proud of and just, you know, taking it to the level that everybody here does. Well, again, I appreciate you guys hanging out with us. A round of applause for Chris and Fletcher. We again want to thank you all for coming out to the Smoking Jacket 2023. Again, I'm your host, Raghu Mamir, and we will come right back with the award ceremony. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time. 